you worship someone or something today. You are worshiping either the true God in the biblical means he has prescribed, or you are engaged in what the Bible calls idolatry. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Is there anything you love more than anything else, including God? Are you willing to disobey God to get it? And is that desire and its fulfillment what you believe will bring you the greatest happiness? Well, so far in the series, Tom has examined how God's wrath is revealed against unbelievers, as shown in Romans chapter 1. Mankind responds to God's wrath by suppressing the truth and doing so in hard-hearted rebellion. Today, you'll see another way in which man responds to God's wrath, and that's through hard-hearted devoted worship to false gods, fueled by an intentional flight from the one true God. To help you discern the matter, the Apostle Paul gives you several compelling insights into false religion, including what makes it so attractive. You'll get those insights in today's study, and you'll learn the fundamental reality that lies behind every false object of worship. So let's join our teacher right now with today's study here on The Word Unleashed. Today we want to finish the the paragraph we've been studying together in Romans chapter 1. If you're already there, keep your hand there, but we're going to start in the Old Testament. We're going to start in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, here the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, condemns and points out the, the absolute folly of idolatry. In verse 9 of Isaiah 44, this is what the prophet wrote. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. And he goes on then to recount the futility of human beings, verse 12, creating creating tools with which they can make an idol. And then verse 13, the actual creation of the idol itself. And and, and then he details how there's this, there's this grove of trees that are developed and grown for the purpose of, of serving man. He cuts down one tree, and with half of it, he creates a fire and bakes his bread and warms himself. And the other half, he makes an idol and falls down in front of it and worships. Look at the indictment that Isaiah gives in verse 18. They do not know, nor do they understand... For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see. That is, God has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. What's going on here? This isn't denying what Paul says in Romans 1, that they know. The point is they knew, they rejected that knowledge, and God, as he often does, and as we'll see in Romans 1, gives them over to their idolatry so that their idolatry begins to blind them and they actually begin to believe the lie. Verse 19, no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of this log in the fire, and I bake bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. The sarcasm here is just dripping. 
He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot, this is, this is frightening, he cannot deliver himself from this idolatry, nor can he say, is there not a lie in my right hand? God eventually gives the idolater over to his idolatry where he believes the lie. And he takes the knowledge of God that he began with, and it becomes the lie of false religion. Now, why would an intelligent person participate in the obvious folly of idolatry? Well, in Romans chapter 1, Paul explains... And he explains to us that the reason behind false religion is not intellectual, it is in fact moral. Let's read again for the last time this paragraph we've been studying, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. You follow along. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. As we've noted, Paul is here in the second half of Romans 1 giving an indictment of all immoral pagans. That is, all of those who don't claim to worship the true God of the Bible. He begins his indictment in verse 18 by saying that right now, the wrath, the just anger of God is being revealed against them. And the rest of the chapter really answers two questions, and that is, why is God's wrath being revealed against them? And the, the rest of the chapter is... How is God's wrath being revealed against them? We've been considering the first of those questions. Why? Why is God's wrath revealed against immoral pagans? And there are really two reasons Paul gives us here. First of all, because of their willful rebellion against God's law. Willful rebellion against God's law. That's incorporated into two words in verse 18. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. This is the rejection of God's law, what he's revealed about what we owe him and what he's revealed that we owe the people around us. It is willful rebellion against his law. The second reason that God's wrath is being revealed is willful ignorance of God's person. Now, we noted that in verse 18, there's just a brief summary of what Paul means by this. Notice how he ends verse 18. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold down what they know about God. They stifle it. And then beginning in verse 19 through the end of this paragraph, he fills that out and gives us a detailed explanation. 
And we've walked through this, so let me just recount it for you briefly. He makes it clear in verse 19 that God has, in fact, revealed himself. Notice verse 19. That which is known about God is evident. It's clear, it's visible, it's plain within them. For God made it evident to them. God has revealed himself. He also tells us when God revealed himself. Verse 20 begins, For since the creation of the world, day after day, night after night, from the very beginning of creation, this revelation is ongoing. What God revealed about himself is, notice verse 20, his invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and his deity, his divine nature. Those have been clearly seen. How has God revealed himself? Well, Paul says that these things are are seen and being understood through what has been made. Man looks at the creation and he sees in the creation these realities about God. What results from that revelation? Well, these sobering words at the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. There has never been a person on this planet, there will never be a person on this planet who has an excuse to offer God because he has seen the revelation of God in creation and he has rejected it. And that brings us then to how man responds to God's revelation in creation. This is what we've been considering. In light of all of that, how is it that man responds? Well, he responds in two very shocking ways. Last time, we finished examining the first way he responds, and that is hard-hearted rebellion against the true God. Hard-hearted rebellion. Notice how it's expressed in verse 21. For even though they knew God, that is, they knew these things about God from the creation, they did not honor him. They did not glorify him as God, literally, and they did not give thanks. Those are acts of rebellion. They refused to glorify the true God, and they refused to express gratitude for his goodness. Now, I noted for you that the, the next three verbs after that are all passive, and they describe not what man does, not man's rebellion, but rather the consequences of his rebellion. These are things that happen to him in light of his rebellion. First of all, the consequence of flawed thinking. Notice verse 21, when they didn't honor God, when they didn't give him thanks, they became futile in their speculations. Their thinking, their processing, and their conclusions were all flawed and empty. Another consequence is a darkened heart. Every aspect of man's being, every part of his immaterial soul, the darkness descended. His mind doesn't work properly. His emotions don't work properly. His will doesn't make the right decisions. Is a darkened heart. And the third consequence is self-confident foolishness. Verse 22, professing, claiming to be saphos, wise, they actually became moros, moronic, foolish. Now today we come to the pagan second response to God and his general revelation. Not only does he show hard-hearted rebellion 
But secondly, and this this response is also truly shocking, he shows hard-hearted worship of false gods. Now, if you had never read this and you were were really thinking through the reality of this, this would be shocking to you. Instead of worshiping the true, the one, the only living God, the creator of heaven and earth, man turns from that knowledge and in a hard-hearted way decides to worship replacements, substitutes. Now, let's, let's pick up our steam here and start at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul's point is here is man's greatest folly, that he would choose to worship something created rather than the creator himself. It is, and I don't use this word lightly, stupid. But here's man's problem. As part of God's design of every human soul, he hardwired man to worship. Do you understand this? Every human being is hardwired to worship. He can deny that reality. He can stay away from organized religion. He can even claim to be an agnostic or an atheist. But what he can never do is change how he's hardwired. So what happens then when a creature made by God to worship God refuses to worship God? Folks, let this sink into your soul. What will never happen is he will never cease to worship. It can't happen. Every human being worships someone or something. Let me make it more personal. You worship someone or something today. You are worshiping either the true God in the biblical means he has prescribed, or you are engaged in what the Bible calls idolatry. But there's no neutral ground here. There's no gray area between the two where you find yourself. According to God, every person on earth, every person in this room, you are worshiping either the true God as he's prescribed or you are up to your eyeballs in idolatry. Martin Luther writes, the human mind is so inclined by nature that as it turns from the one, it of necessity becomes addicted to the other. He who rejects the creator must worship the creature. John Murray puts it this way, the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If there is the absence of the true, there is always the presence of the false. That really is Paul's point in verses 21 to 23. Refusing to worship the true God, man will create or pursue another object of worship. In other words, he, he will either engage in the worship of the true God or he will pursue false religion. Now, I'm going to use that expression, false religion, a number of times. But let me define it for you so you're clear on what I mean by that. I don't mean simply the, the one who falls down in front of a, of a piece of wood or a rock. 
I mean by false religion, all the philosophies, all the belief systems, all the religions of the world, all of the individually sort of personally created designer religions of individuals, everything other than the true biblical worship of the one God of Scripture. It's false religion. Now, in verse 23, Paul provides us with several compelling insights into false religion. Let's look at these insights together. First of all, all false religion is idolatry. All false religion is idolatry. Notice the subject of the sentence in verse 23 is not expressed and exchanged. To get the subject of the sentence, we have to go back in English to verse 22. They, they exchange the glory. But in the Greek text, the, the subject is supplied in the verb itself. And so it is in verse 23, and they exchange the glory. So to whom is Paul referring when he uses the pronoun they? Well, in context, the antecedent of that pronoun is in verse 18. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who are the ones who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? All pagans. So understand then, Paul is making a sweeping universal point. All pagans, all who don't worship the one true God are engaged in false religion, which is idolatry. Now, this is a a stark contrast to the spirit of the age in which we live. If you take a comparative religions course in one of the local universities or one of the Texas universities, if the professor believes in the concept of God at all, he will say something like this. Well, you know, mankind's journey to God is, is something like climbing Mount Everest. You know, if you want to climb Mount Everest, you first have to decide which path to take. And, and there are many different paths. You can start in Nepal, you can start in other places. But in the end, all of those paths on Everest are leading to one place, and that is to its summit. In the same way, this professor might say, there are many different belief systems, many different religions that exist. But ultimately, All of the paths that are on this spiritual journey are intended to arrive at the same destination, a knowledge of God. Instead of that, Scripture asserts that there are not many paths to God, but only one. And all alternate paths, without exception, all the paths that promise that they will eventually end in God's eternal presence are dead ends. Or more accurately, they are paths that lead to the opposite destination, eternal hell. Now, the question that ought to come into your mind is if there's only the true faith in the true and living God and everything else is false religion, everything else is idolatry, where did all of this false religion come from? You know, we speak about man-made religion. And of course, in one sense, that may be true. But that's not entirely accurate. Scripture speaks very clearly about where false religion comes from. You first have to understand that false gods don't exist, right? You understand that. There, there are no other gods. There's the one living and true God. And the others are pretend. That's 
that point is made a number of places in Scripture, but let me just give you one. Acts 19, verse 26. Here are Paul's enemies talking about his ministry. And listen to what they say about Paul. Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying, here's what Paul teaches, that gods made with hands are no gods at all. That's absolutely right. They don't exist. So what really lies behind every false god, every false object of worship? The answer might surprise you. According to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the answer is demons. Let me give you Moses. Here's Moses in Deuteronomy 32:17. He's talking about idolatry. And he says, "They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not dread." You hear what Moses is saying? He's saying that while those gods don't really exist, those pretend gods originate with, are empowered by, are animated by demons. And those demons then that are impersonating those gods become the real object of the worshiper's affection and adoration. Paul says the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So understand the import of these verses. The ramifications are far-reaching. The inventor of all false religion is God's arch enemy, Satan himself. Satan's greatest strategy to oppose the work of God in this world is not to cause you to stumble in your flesh. He does that. He creates a world system that appeals to your flesh. He puts temptation in your way, as does your own flesh bring you to temptation. But that's not his main role. Satan's primary strategy is to promote damning false religion. And behind every false religion is a demon impersonating the God who is worshipped in order to enslave the people who follow that religion. So technically then understand there is no man-made religion. There is the true faith revealed to us by God himself and all other faiths, all other religions, all other belief systems of any kind can be traced back to the prince of darkness himself. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and it's also in Ephesians 5, Paul's talking about sexual sin, and he gets to to sin of the heart, to sexual lust. And listen to how he describes it. Colossians 3, 5, literally says this, covetousness, speaking of sexual covetousness, which is idolatry. That's very sobering, because think about what that means. If lust can be idolatry, that means you don't have to have a name for your God to be an idolater. You don't even have to make a deliberate decision, I'm going to worship this. The 
person involved in sexual covetousness does neither. He simply pursues his desires and he gives precedent to the pursuit of his desires over God. And to do so is to become an idolater, Paul says. And that's not just true with sexual sin. It's true with any desire. In Romans 1, from the simple pronoun they and its antecedent, the men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, we learn that all of those outside of the worship of the true God in Scripture are engaged in false religion, and all false religion, according to Paul in verse 23, is idolatry. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will have part 12 for you next time. Do join us then. How do you become an effective leader in Christ's church? In his book, Being the Right Kind of Leader, Tom Pennington identifies from Matthew's Gospel the five key commitments of an effective and biblically grounded leader. Keeping those commitments is essential to properly understanding, applying, and growing in the practice of faithful, effective leadership. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, Being the Right Kind of Leader, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting us online at The Word Unleashed. Connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. (laughs) 